As a means to reduce emissions from industry, capturing and storing CO2 from industrial facilities and returning it back into the ground before it can impact the atmosphere has been proven to be an effective and needed climate solution. How we go about securing and developing these storage sites varies and has evolved over time. Industry dense, the U.S. Gulf Coast region has a potential to be a hotspot for storage site development. That according to Dr. Alex Bump, a research science associate at the University of Texas's Gulf Coast Carbon Center. Dr. Alex Bump recently authored a paper published in the International Journal of Greenhouse Gas Control, which explores CO2 storage methods, namely approaching the concept of CO2 injection in a fetch area, which would have the potential to support the scale-up of CCS in the U.S. Gulf Coast region as more and more industrial players look to adopt the technology there. Hi, Alex. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. Do you mind telling us a little bit about your journey and how you got into the carbon capture and storage space and ultimately the Gulf Coast Carbon Center? So I'm an explorer. I, I have a bachelor's in physics and a PhD in structural geology and tectonics. I spent the better part of two decades in petroleum exploration, um, working all over the world. I used to describe this as a treasure hunt where you get paid to go play in the mountains and solve puzzles. Um, and in a lot of ways, it was amazing. But I grew up on a farm and environment and stewardship have always been important to me. And as much as the world still depends on oil and gas, the climate impacts became harder and harder for me to take. Um, and I left, left oil and gas in 2018 not quite knowing what was next um, but we so we spent a year literally traveling the world uh, with my wife and two girls moving back to the states and exploring what might be next and you know lots of conversations with lots of people and basically in any industry that could possibly use a geologist but what caught my attention and caught my interest was ccs as a way to put the same subsurface skills that i used in oil and gas to work on something new on something mitigating climate change, which really feels to me like the problem of this century. So friends of friends led me to the Gulf Coast Carbon Center, and I've been happily working on CCS ever since and learning from some of the best in the world. And this is has been an absolutely wonderful place to land. I can't imagine doing anything else. So I'm part research scientist, part educator, um, part just public resource. I do a lot of outreach and stuff like this, actually. Perfect. And you've recently wrote uh, a paper on CO2 storage, kind of focused on more, well, I would describe it as more innovative ways of, of looking at s- storage. But before we get into that, do you mind just kind of giving us um, maybe an understanding of what constitutes a, a storage site? So it- Basically, a candidate is anything, any place that you have more than about a kilometer of sedimentary rock. So that's, I don't know what, a third, a half of the globe right there, something on that order. And your boundary condition is you have to protect freshwater and environmental resources. So the first thing that you're looking for is containment, geologic seals or confining systems that are capable of retaining CO2 in the subsurface. Beyond that, uh, you need injectivity, that is the ability to inject it at industrial rates, whatever it's, whatever's coming down the pipeline needs to go into the ground. Uh, and then you need capacity. You need the storage capacity to contain, you know, several years, decades worth of emissions from whatever source it is you're decarbonizing. Uh, strangely enough, there are actually two more factors. 
and they're the above ground. And these are the things that actually uh, <laughs> send projects off the rails, if you will. And it's public acceptance and economic viability, which are kind of obvious, but those are the things that actually get in the way of, of developing storage sites, not to be taken for granted. So in the context of speaking of very CO2 injection, including injection in a fetch area, you've previously said plume edges, plume edges still matter. What is the plume and plume pressure and why does, why does that matter? Good question. There are two plumes that we worry about. Um, everyone focuses on CO2 plume. And what I mean by that is just the injected CO2 and the plume being this, call it a cloud of CO2 in the subsurface that is pushing the, the pore waters away as you inject it into the subsurface. Um, so the edge of the CO2 cloud is what we refer, refer to as the plume edge. And it is a regulatory requirement that you keep track of where that is and that you lease the pore space required to hold it. Everyone focuses on the CO2 because it's an introduced substance and it's what we're putting in the ground. You want to make sure that there is no adverse impact um, and it monitoring and how you set up monitoring to assure that there is no adverse impact is a whole talk in itself, uh, but thoroughly doable. The second thing that I was going to say is that the other plume that we keep track of is the pressure plume. So as we inject CO2, we're pushing poor waters away. And the inevitable result is that you raise pressure. Um, how much you raise pressure depends on how much CO2 you inject, how fast you inject it, how big the pressure compartment is. Um, you can think of it like a gas storage tank. Um, the pressure rise depends on how much you put in the storage tank and how big the tank is. Uh, same thing is true of the subsurface. But the pressure plume matters because what we are required in the US to to keep track of is the pressure sufficient to drive native brines from the injection zone up through a hypothetical open well bore to the lowest freshwater. So as a means of safeguarding freshwater, EPA wants to know where is the pressure elevation associated with your injection project sufficient to push these the salty brines up into freshwater if there were an open well bore. And then tell us about all the open well bores that are within this pressure plume. Go and review them, remediate them if needed. Um, but before I'm going to give you permission, you need to show me that this is not going to pose a hazard. So that pressure footprint or pressure plume is called the area of review. And it's a fundamental concept in US injection law and a fundamental, um, fundamental product of CO2 or injection into the subsurface. Um, this is well-proven stuff, and area of review grows out of that. So, in fact, is embedded in those laws. So it's a well-tested concept and an important one. What you're what you're saying is uh, keeping an eye on the plume is part of the regulatory process. It's not really limited to fetch trap, etc. I mean, it's part of CCS's correct story. Um, yeah, correct. So what are the what are the different types of approaches to storage uh, development that we're seeing? Yeah, I, I liken this. There's a lot of things being tried and 
I, it's early days in this industry, and I often liken it to the, the late 90s in the internet, when it was obvious that there was something there, and it had huge potential. But it wasn't yet clear what the business model was. So you may remember, if you went, opened a web browser, you had a choice of search engines. You had Google, and you had Ask Jeeves, and you had Netscape Navigator, and Yahoo, and various others that I can't remember. Um, lots of people trying lots of things, and not at all obvious what was going to win or lose or prevail in the long term, but clear that there was something there. And I would say that we're in very much the same place with CCS now. It's clear that there's something there. It's growing very fast, but there's lots of people different operators trying different business models and different strategies. So you have things like small projects that are trying to store very locally. You have big government subsidized storage hubs that may be onshore, maybe offshore, um, trying to aggregate lots of emissions from a given area and store them centrally. You have projects like Northern Lights that are actually using ship transport to pick up CO2 at various ports around Northern Europe and take it to an offshore, offshore storage site. What's going to we have talk of uh, sending LNG cargos one way and bringing CO2 back the other way, or perhaps a triangle route bring CO2 to a storage site and then return the cargo of LNG. Who knows what's going to prevail in the long term? And it's probably a combination of those things. You mentioned in your paper. The current wave of commercial project development is pushing CCS into new areas and revealing new challenges to identifying potential storage sites. What do you mean by that? <laughs> Basically, the projects to date have largely been either government-funded uh, pilot projects or demonstration projects or very early first-mover industrial projects. So they've been able to really cherry-pick. Um, and pick the, I guess, surest sites, the ones where they know it's going to succeed, that there's, they absolutely minimize the, pro the potential challenges. Um, and as we get into more commercial development, of course, the development space gets more crowded and you start citing projects um, close to lots of emission sources, which might mean, you know, industrial areas, densely populated areas, areas with other competing uses, areas with other storage projects. So you just get more constraints that you have to consider and figure out a way to, to deal with. So that's what I mean. There's been a lot of interest around CCS in the U.S. Gulf Coast area. Is it a industry-dense region? Uh, is that kind of why? And if so, what is the what's the storage availability right now in in the Gulf? Uh, it is a very industry industry dense area. Um, Texas leads the U.S. in CO2 emissions or in greenhouse gas emissions, most of which are CO2. Louisiana is number two, uh, and Texas, for context, is about two and a half times Louisiana. It's about 350 million tons of greenhouse gas emissions per year. So. The next leading candidate is the Ohio River Valley through Pennsylvania, Ohio, Indiana. Um, and that actually is the emissions are already declining. So Gulf Coast, lots of emissions. Um, also one of the world's most prolific hydrocarbon basins with proven reservoirs and seals at literally every level from Jurassic up through Pleistocene. So 
a huge amount of data, a huge number of proven reservoirs and seals, a huge amount of expertise and uh, subsurface workforce, if that makes sense. Uh, so it is really, really a leading candidate uh, for large scale industrial storage. And the CO2 storage capacity there, it's pretty large. It's huge, but we argue about exactly how huge it is. Some colleagues of mine, Tip Meckel and Ramon Trevino and Sue Havorka and others at the Gulf Coast Carbon Center did a study of the Gulf Coast Miocene, which is a fairly narrow stratigraphic interval that covers a narrow band of geography along the coast. And they found 125 gigatons, a billion tons of storage capacity in the Gulf Coast Miocene. For context, U.S. emissions are about six gigatons, six billion tons per year. World emissions are about 35 gigatons per year. Uh, beyond that, we get into these arguments about how you calculate capacity and what exactly is realizable. Even my colleagues would say that 125 gigatons is overstated, but it's also a narrow slice of the potential geology available for storage. So you get plus and minus. Um, I think the takeaway is that we have capacity to store for decades, um, decades worth of emissions, which is really all we need to know at this point. And as we do more of this and refine the, the estimates, that number will, will change. When it comes to developing storage areas for CO2, you argue that we should consider fetch areas and the associated traps that can be beneficial for storage. Do you mind unpacking that concept for me a little bit? Why would it be useful? The easiest way to explain this is probably by analogy. And CO2 is a buoyant fluid. So in the subsurface, it rises. It basically flows uphill until it gets trapped. Um, and my analogy, if we flip this upside down, it looks a lot like water flowing down hills and accumulating in lakes at the bottom. So, you know, everyone knows that lakes can store a lot of water. And if you want to get water, it's easy to stick a bucket in the lake or a pipe in it and retrieve water. So everyone focuses on lakes as sources of water. And bear with me, I may overstate this as an analogy, but imagine that your goal is to store water. Right? Maybe you're in California and you're worried about heavy rains and flooding, or maybe you're thinking about aquifers and sources of fresh water that you could drill for, whatever. Um, point is that your goal is to store it. So you add up the capacity of all these lakes, and it's just not enough. It's nowhere near enough. And your great insight is that you could actually store it on the hillsides, right? As rain hits the hillsides, some of it soaks in. And the more you can slow the runoff, the more you can get to soak in and the larger the, the storage capacity of the hill slopes. Basically, that's what we're doing. We're saying you could use the hill slopes here. And in fact, doing so would give you several advantages. If you moved the injection site up the hill slope, you could get some standoff from the legacy wells that are clustered in the lakes because that's where uh, water was easy to produce, or in our case, where hydrocarbons were producible. Um, you get a lot of flexibility in siting because you're not restricted to the lake itself. You can you know, go to any of the hill slopes and any position on the hill slopes that ring the lakes. And of course, you get a vastly increased area. 
So if you can make effective storage out of the slope, then you have greatly increased capacity in addition to these other advantages. So turning it upside down, going back to the subsurface, the hill slopes in this analogy are the fetch areas. They're the drainage cells that feed uh, fluids toward buoyant traps, which are the what we call traps or the lakes in this analogy. Um, those are the places that have been historically tapped for oil and gas. And in the Gulf Coast, pretty much every structural high, uh, every lake has a producing field on it. Uh, many of them have hundreds, sometimes even thousands of old wells in them. So every one of those wells is a hole in a geologic, a proven geologic seal. You can deal with them. We can review the construction and the plugging and abandoning. Um, we can remediate where necessary and we routinely do, but it adds time and it adds cost to the project. So if you can go move away from them down into the fetch area or in the analogy up onto the hill slope, then you can reduce the pressure that hits them and you can reduce the need to review You can and potentially remediate. So you can not only get increased storage capacity, uh, increased flexibility and in where you site projects, but you also reduce the, the risk and the cost. Is this being, is it currently being used? And what, and if so, what does that look like? It has been used uh, and it is a familiar concept, but I would say that it has largely been used incidentally. So projects like Tamakamai or Ketsin or Cranfield have all injected down dip down in the fetch area and watch CO2 move. Uh, and apologies to the project developers if they really were thinking of this, um, but I think the primary goals of most of those projects were other things. Um, they were testing storage viability, they were testing capacity and so on. Um, so they've used this concept of injection in the fetch area uh, without necessarily articulating it as, the, as a key insight and a key concept. What they've demonstrated is that residual trapping and dissolution and so on, the trapping mechanisms that work in a fetch area are actually really effective and they can completely arrest the movement of a CO2 plume long before it hits a physical barrier, a conventional sort of petroleum trap. Um, in petroleum, this is migration loss, which again is a really familiar concept. Yeah. Fluids are generated at depth, they move vertically through whatever permeability pathways there are, and you lose a fair fraction of them. Um, it's left in residual trapping, poor throat trapping, as it's called. Um, with CO2, you get that, plus you get dissolution. Ultimately, you get mineralization. Um, there's a lot that gets trapped on migration paths. So the concept is really familiar. And what we're doing here, basically, is articulating it. And oh, which of course allows it to be applied systematically and consciously. So it sounds flexible. Where best could it be applied? It, it can be applied anywhere, but it's, it has its limits and it has you know, areas where it's most favorable. So to go back to my analogy of hill slopes and lakes, right? Rain can soak into the ground wherever it falls. But this idea of dividing topography into drainage basins is really most applicable in hilly topography. If it's completely flat, if you're doing this in Kansas or 
whatever, um, pick your flat region. The concept of a drainage basin is, you know, it's there, but it's all the same drainage basin, so it's not particularly useful. Um, the same thing applies to the subsurface if we go back from analogy and invert the concept of hills. This works best in heavily structured areas, so areas with lots of geologic structure, folds and faults and things that divide the subsurface into discrete drainage cells or fetch areas. The projects like um, Decatur, the Illinois Basin Decatur project, um, just inject under a basically flatlying regional seal. So that in a, some sense, they're using this, but it's, it's flat geology and everything. There's not a lot of tendency to drain in one particular direction. So how do you how do you characterize that? It's the concept is just less applicable where you've got really flatlying areas. From a from a regulatory perspective, would it be different to uh, or more arduous to deploy than um, what we're seeing now? I, the idea actually is that it's easier to deploy, um, basically because in places like the Gulf of Mexico, where you have lots of geologic structure, but also lots and lots, I mean, in fact, 1.1 million legacy wells, um, this allows you to get some standoff from legacy wells. So to remove the, the pressure footprint of the project from proximity to those legacy wells and reduce the need to, to review and remediate them, which just reduces the burden on regulators. So the flip side, and there's always a, <laughs> There's always a flip side, right? Um, but the, the trade-off in this case is that without a buoyant trap and a clear backstop to CO2 migration, uh, you have to do a little more characterization and a little more modeling to assure yourself about how far the CO2 plume is likely to move. And then you have to set the monitoring up to verify that. So there's a little bit more work in the characterization and modeling and but significantly less in the review of legacy wells. Uh, but your concept of of uh, fetch trap injection, how do you socialize that with those who might be interested? So we've been talking about this very consciously for a couple of years, and those who we talk to, from regulators to uh, industrial partners and actual project developers, there's been no pushback from them. They're actually really eager to uh, to embrace this, and it, in many ways, it's a kind of well, yeah, of course you could do that, duh. Um, but articulating it makes it conscious and something that you can apply systematically, and it's often something that people haven't thought of before. But when you put it in these terms, you're like, yeah, okay, sure, that works. Um, the biggest pushback we get on it is how much CO2 and pressure you'll trap in the fetch area. And there's some view that all of it will migrate instantly toward the trap, right? So it's the water flowing down the hill straight into the lake. None of it gets retained on the, on the hill slope. And in some circumstances, that would be correct. So I often use the analogy of pouring your drink on the sidewalk on a hilly, a nice hilly street, right? And you know that if you pour your drink on a beautifully, freshly paved surface, really smooth, it will run farther 
down the hill than if you pour it on the grass next to the sidewalk, right? Roughness matters. Um, if you pour it in the grass, it's not going anywhere. If you pour it on the sidewalk, it may travel several feet, meters maybe. Um, and the bigger the drink, of course, the farther it will flow. Using fetch area trapping is actually really similar. So in some sense, there's room for all views and characterization of the geology in the fetch area really matters. Uh, maximizing this concept depends on choosing your injection zones well so that you, in this analogy, so that you maximize the grass or the roughness of the, the surface. In geologic terms, it's maximizing the heterogeneity. So what we've discovered, and some of my colleagues have done some absolutely gorgeous experiments showing the effect of, of heterogeneity on migration of CO2. And very small heterogeneities can make a big difference. Even changes from fine sand to medium sands are enough to divert the flow of CO2. So having some geologic heterogeneity in the injection zone is really useful in creating lots of residual trapping and lots of you know, diversion of CO2, which gives you a contact with new pore waters and a chance to dissolve it. And this is the role of geologic characterization and the role for explorers like myself. Pick your injection zone. Pick the good clean sands down in the syncline with great injectivity and the ability to get it in at industrial rates. But find the ones that fine upward so as you go up onto the structure, they get thinner and more heterogeneous and more mud in them and maybe pinch out before you get to the structural crest at all. So you give yourself lots of chances to arrest migrating CO2. And that's that's basically the secret to this. So are you suggesting this concept is a nice to have in the world of CO2 storage or is it more of a need? Depends on where you work. Um, if you're in a place like the North Sea, which has infrastructure and emissions around it, so and in fact developing CCS projects, so it's a realistic place uh, to, to talk about this, you have a lot of running room because although there are lots of hydrocarbon fields around, there's a lot of space in between them. And it's offshore, there's there's few other developments. There's no cities, for example, or competing uses on the surface. Um, just the odd shipping lane or pipeline you need to avoid. So you have a lot of freedom to move around and a lot of traps and fetch areas that are remote from old wells or other constraints, right? Contrast that with a place like the onshore Gulf of Mexico, where we have Texas with 30 something million people, Louisiana with I don't know how many it is, but point being lots of cities and private land and agricultural um, uses, industrial development. Every geologic high, every structural high is full of old wells, things that you'd really rather avoid in CCS. Uh, you have a lot of constraints. And so this becomes a really useful way of trying to avoid those constraints and develop CO2 storage in amongst competing uses without harm or conflict to other competing uses. So you could apply it in the North Sea, but you don't really have to. You mentioned legacy wells. Why do we want to avoid uh, the use of legacy wells? 
the reason for avoiding them or treating them with care is that they were engineered for different purposes. Uh, so 100 years ago, even 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, wells have not been designed with CCS in mind. So these are wells that are designed to safely dispose of salt water or safely produce oil and gas, but they're not designed for CO2 or for seriously increasing pressure in general. Petroleum production, of course, depletes pressure because you're taking fluids out. CO2, we're putting fluids in, so you're increasing pressure, and these wells simply aren't designed for it. So part of the, the process of developing CCS projects is going back and looking at these wells and seeing, was the design and was the construction sufficient for the purpose that we're now going to, or the, the new um, demands that we're now going to place on them? If not, what do we need to do to, to assure their integrity? The fortunate thing is that drilling technology of the day wasn't much. So most of those wells are pretty shallow. And the depths that we're talking about injecting uh, CO2 are you know, between 1,500 meters and about four kilometers below the surface, um, well below anything that those, those wells ever touched. Okay, right. So if repurpose making those assessments you mentioned would be primary then. Just going back to the idea of turning to fetch areas for new storage site development, where do you see this concept getting picked up and how quickly do you see it being widely deployed? Yeah, so Gulf of Mexico is definitely going to be the leader with this, simply because there's a lot of emissions and a lot of projects moving forward, and this is the way you get them done uh, without going way offshore into much emptier territory. So there are projects in development now that are using this concept. Um, I've worked on several of them. And they're, where are they now? They're in the phase of gathering data and filing for permits. So you might see them actually storing CO2 in two years, three years. Sort of depends on how long the permitting process takes because that actually is the, the single longest step in this process. Are there any other innovative developments that you're seeing in the CO2 storage space that pique your interest? Lots. Um, it's an exciting place to be. Uh, I'll highlight a few. You know, I came across Ahmed Ibrahim and his colleagues at King Fahd University uh, using are inverting drilling data and using AI, artificial intelligence, to constrain subsurface stress state, which is really, really cool because what they're doing is taking the normal drilling data, the torque, the weight on bit, um, the rate of penetration, and using artificial intelligence to invert that for the state of stress in the subsurface, which historically has been a difficult thing to, to measure but it really matters for CCS because we're increasing subsurface pressure. We really want to, uh, we need to know how strong the rocks are. And we can constrain these reasonably well uh, through normal calculations, but this allows us to constrain it precisely with every well that is drilled, which is really cool. Um, Another one, Hywin Me and Tip Meckel, two of my colleagues at the Carbon Center, doing really cool work, experimental work on the role of geologic fabric 
and heterogeneity in trapping CO2 as it migrates. Um, if I could be so bold, one of the things that I've been working on with uh, Haiwan and Tip and uh, Sahar Bakshian, Syed Husseini, is this concept of composite confinement. And again, exploiting the idea of migration-assisted trapping or residual trapping uh, with the idea that you can assure containment with discontinuous geologic barriers. So this stack of discontinuous deltaic muds, whatever, creates lots of heterogeneity and a very long tortuous flow path for vertical migration. And through geologic analogs, through experiment, and through numerical modeling, we found that it can create really, really effective containment for tens, even hundreds of megatons of CO2 injected. Um, but actually, the thing I am most excited about is not the, the research as cool as it is. It's the actual number of projects in development and the momentum that's building around climate change mitigation. You know, our reason for working on CCS is to stand up that private industry and to see climate change mitigation at scale. And I think we're starting to see that. It's really exciting. You know, I, I grew up in Vermont um, and old New England houses and behind every house and every farmhouse, there's this pile of rusting cans and broken bottles, right? There was a day not very long ago uh, when people simply threw their trash out the back door. They had their own pile of it. Municipal trash collection became a thing in the 50s, 60s, uh, depending on where you lived. It's relatively recent, and you wouldn't dream of throwing your trash out the back door. Now. Put it in the bin, and it gets collected. It goes to a landfill. We've seen the same transition with dumping of industrial waste into waterways. Right? That was common practice through the 50s and 60s really started to change in the US, at least in the 1970s with the passage of the Clean Water Act. Right? And again, it's something you wouldn't dream of doing now. And those fly-by-night operators who do are taken to court, they're fined, uh, they're social pariahs. Effectively, we're seeing that same transition with regard to dumping of waste into the atmosphere now. And to me, this looks like a logical progression and exciting to see. Yeah. The I mean, the momentum around CCS is growing, and I think part of that momentum has to do with the research that folks like you are, are, are helping to elevate in the space, like the ones that you just mentioned. And so thank you for that work, and I think it'll continue to drive CCS forward, hopefully. Thank you. We hope so. For anyone listening, feel free to reach out to me. You can find me on LinkedIn, or you can find me through the Gulf Coast Carbon Center website. But I'm, you know, funded by US tax dollars. And part of my mission here is outreach. So if you have questions, uh, by all means, get in touch, We're happy to talk. Or if you have questions about other aspects of CCS, feel free. Thanks, Alex. Thank you. For more details about this episode and podcast, visit globalccsinstitute.com and head to the Multimedia Library.